Thank you, Dave, and thanks to Pastor Thad for stepping in last week, and thank for you, thank, thanks to all, to all of you who prayed. Voices mostly back, and I uh, got my annual sickness, which renders me bedridden and incapable of speaking and all that stuff, so thanks for those of you who prayed, and thanks again to Thad for stepping in on a Friday evening call, and uh, he was gracious to preach, and he did a great job in taking us through Acts 13. So this morning, we're back to Exodus, back to the story that we've been considering. We are going to be taking a break, Lord willing, in the month of June. So we've got one more sermon. We're going to wrap up with the song by the sea next week in Exodus chapter 15. That's a good place to break and stop because the story kind of shifts from there, from there on out. We are going to come back, Lord willing, in the fall and return to Exodus, but we're going to take a little break over the course of the summer, and we're going to co- preach a couple of different series. We're going to preach a team series through um, the, the doctrines of grace in the book of John in honor of the 400th anniversary of the Canons of Dort. And if you have no idea what that means, that's okay. We'll come back and explain it to you on June 2nd. And uh, it's a big historical milestone, and it's a good opportunity for, to us for, uh, to look at the, the doctrines of grace from the lips of our Lord and see what Jesus taught us about grace and sovereignty and salvation. And then, Lord willing, in July, we're going to, I'm going to preach a four-part series on the subject of the conscience and how we uh, operate the conscience and how the, the conscience operates in the Christian life. And then, Lord willing, in August, we'll get back to Exodus. So this morning, we find ourselves in Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31, and let's pray together before we dive into this passage. Father, thank you so much for the, the rain again that we hear all around us, reminding us Um, of so many biblical images related to the rainfall. And one of them is what the rain does in bringing life to your earth. Um, And so we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, which brings life to your church. And we pray that as the rain is falling, so your spirit would descend upon us and bless your word to our hearts and our lives this morning, that we would be transformed by the hearing and uh, in applying of your word to our lives. We ask this in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen. So, five points here this morning. We're going to look at the gospel according to the Red Sea. In other words, thank you, Dave. You are an angel. So, the gospel according to the Red Sea. We're going to see this passage actually serves as a gospel presentation. It teaches us the good news of what God does in saving us from our sin. And it's a wonderful picture of that. It's a wonderful illustration of that. And I hope it will be a blessing to you this morning as we contemplate that. So first point, we are saved from sin. We are saved from sin. You might be thinking, well, I was listening very carefully. I heard Dave's exhortation to pay attention. I even turned my phone off. I mean, I was listening intently to the passage, and I didn't hear anything about sin. Pastor Mark, here you are again, inventing stuff from the text that's not in there. Hold on, we'll get there. What I see Israel, you might say, what what I see Israel being saved from is Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I see them being saved from the Egyptian army. I don't see them being saved from sin. Well, in reality, they are being saved from the Egyptian army. And they are being saved from sin. Let me show you how. First of all, they're being saved from the sin of the Egyptians. 
Think about what the Egyptians are doing here. They are sinning against God in pursuing the people of Israel. Look at verse 23 of chapter 14. We see this spelled out very clearly. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. Say, where's sin in that? There's not even the word sin. Well, are they supposed to be doing that? Are they supposed to be pursuing the Israelites? No. God has had to tell them many, 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 many times over, you are not to do anything with my people except let them go. And here they are again, even after the death of the firstborn, pursuing the people of Israel to kill them, or at least take them as many as he can into custody to bring them back to Egypt. But nonetheless, what we have here is the Egyptians sinning. And you would think, after all of that, really, ten plagues worth, they would still be doing this. Brothers and sisters, note the irrationality of sin. Sin does not make sense. If you try to explain why sin is or what sin does, it can't be explained rationally. You can understand the allure, you can understand the temptation, but at the heart of sin is complete irrationality. It's insanity. Surely by now they should have known they're not going to win. They're not going to win. They've had time after time after time fighting against God, showing that God in the end is going to leave them flat on the ground with a knockout punch. And in fact, no sensible chariot commander would ever send his troops into the midst of some sea, even if there were walls of water on both sides. Getting your expensive, expensive chariots bogged down was the last thing you would do. It makes no sense. After 10 plagues, you'd think that someone on the Egyptian side would say, <clears throat> Pharaoh, can I talk to you for a second? I don't know what's going to happen, but it's probably going to end badly. Maybe we should just let them go. No, Pharaoh says, go. Into the water? Yes, go into there. I mean, this is insane. This is irrational. This is sin. This is what sin does to us. We are enslaved to our own desires and would rather die than part with them. We see it in Pharaoh's stubborn resistance. We see it in his, in his half-heartedness. And we see it in the shallow religiosity that has occupied his life after repeated rebukes from Moses. We not only see the sin of the Egyptians, we also see the sin of the Israelites and of Moses. Lest we think that this was only an Egyptian problem, that sin was somehow just confined to Egypt, as we saw two weeks ago, the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt, but Egypt had not gotten out of their heart yet. Remember, before this deliverance takes place, what is Israel doing? Panicking in utter faithlessness. That's what they're doing. They are panicking by the Red Sea. They are not trusting God. They're not believing Moses. They're taking their perspective, and they're running with it. And for all they know, they're going to be dead at the end of an Egyptian arrow or under a chariot wheel. Objectively, brothers and sisters, we are free 
according to Romans 8.1, from the condemnation of our sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have positional freedom. The penalty is gone. There was an objective guilt on us, but through Jesus we have been set free. We saw that illustrated in the story of Passover. That in that account of Passover, we see not only that Egypt was guilty, but Israel was guilty. They, too, needed a substitute shed, blood, whose blood was shed in their place so that the death angel would pass over them and judgment would not enter their household. However, even though they were objectively free, the power and presence of sin remained. While we have been saved from the penalty of sin as God's people, we are being saved from the power of sin and will one day be saved from the presence of sin. However, right now, subjectively, we still struggle with wanting to go back to Egypt too, to our old way of life. We see this play out throughout the narrative. Moses is at one time a hero of the faith and at another time is the chief among sinners. We see him at the very beginning of the story of the Exodus, slaying the Egyptians and trying to take over, leading the, Hebrew Israel, or the Hebrews without a call from God at all, acting prematurely, which ends up, to, ends up bringing him to a 40-year trip to the wilderness in Midian before God calls him again. We also see the Israelites behaving very much with faith. In Exodus chapter 2, they hear the news that God has heard their cries and they immediately respond with rejoicing and joy and prayer and praise. However, at the same time, in Exodus chapter 5 or in Exodus chapter 14, they get news of things not going the way they originally planned and they abandon it altogether. We see Moses arguing with God in chapters 3 and 4 about why he should not be chosen along with his disobedience to the covenant. In the meanwhile, at the end of Exodus chapter 4, we see Israel worshiping. And then again in Exodus chapter 5, when things got worse, both Israel and Moses complained against God. You know, we need to be saved from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but its power and presence and ongoing effects in our lives. We see it in the life of the people of Egypt. We see it in the life of the people of Israel. We see it in Moses. I mean, read the story of the Exodus. It is up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. One chapter they're trusting God, another chapter they're disobeying, another chapter. I mean, it's, it's just ping pong, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We need to be saved from sin. The rest of this sermon is about how it actually happens. Point number two, we are saved by crossing over. We are saved by crossing over. In other words, there is a decisive moment in which we move out of one state and into another state. By state, I don't mean Kentucky and Indiana. I mean one realm of existence into another realm of existence. Look at Exodus 14 and verse 22. Exodus 14, verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And then verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They're making a transition. They are moving out of the land of bondage into a land of freedom. They are moving out of captivity into, or captivity to Pharaoh, into joyful captivity 
to God. And really what we see happening in the parting of the Red Sea is the story of creation all over again. At creation, you remember the waters were separated from the dry land in Genesis 1-9. God separates the water through a wind. And God rescues his people from death by sending his spirit wind to repeat creation as he separates the waters to create dry ground. Salvation is brought about by a creative act of God. And notice something about our salvation here. Salvation is not brought about by what we do. It's brought about by what God does. That is critical to understand the essence of Christianity, and it's critical to understand the essence of the gospel. It's what sets the Christian faith apart from every other world religious system. Salvation is not brought about by what we do, but by what God has done. That's what we have sung this morning repeatedly. The Lord is our salvation. The Israelites cross over the Red Sea, and that crossing over is a great picture of salvation. The minute they crossed over the Red Sea, they passed out of death into life. That should sound very similar to something Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 24, that whoever believes in me no longer remains in death, but is passed out of death into life. This idea makes Christianity distinct. See, in other systems of belief, everything is about trying to get to the other side, working our way for it. But that's not the case here. Salvation is by trusting God's work for us, not our work for God. There was nothing the Israelites could do to save themselves. They were utterly and helplessly trapped, hopeless by the Red Sea. And so are we in our sin. There is nothing we can do. We have enemies without, we have enemies within. We are stuck in a cul-de-sac of our own sin. No options other than death. That's the only option unless God makes a way. If God makes a way, we can cross over. But we can only do it if God does it. And brothers and sisters, God has made a way. God has made a way. That where just as Egypt was bearing down upon the Israelites and just as Israel was gazing out at Egypt, dumbstruck, fearful, terrified at what was about to happen to them, knowing no other option but the desert and the sea or death. So in the midst of that, God has sent his son into the world so that he would live a perfect life for us where we have failed and so that he would die under the wrath of God where we deserve to die. So that if we, are, if we will transfer our trust to him, we cross over by grace and we are brought out of death and into life. We're saved as a result of union with the one God has sent, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And by his victorious resurrection, he has conquered death and assured all those who have hope in him that they will be forever saved by him. Hebrews 11.29, commenting on this very passage, makes the point that the way in which these Israelites are crossing over is by faith. In fact, it says in Hebrews 11.29, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. How did they cross over? God provided a way, and they trusted God's word. That's how they were saved. 
And brothers and sisters, that's how we're saved. God provided a way, and we believed his promise. That's how we get saved. And we move in his direction. Don Carson, New Testament professor, draws a helpful illustration of this. Remember a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about the Passover, I used his illustration about Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, two very Hebrew names. And Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones were both engaging in the sacrifice of the lamb, and they were waiting in their houses for the death angel. And one of them was particularly distressed, thinking it's probably not going to happen. I mean, I don't know. Who knows if God's going to keep his promise? I mean, I've done what he said, but I don't know. I'm a little shaky about this. And the other one was utterly confident and said, look, God told us to do this. The death angel's going to pass over. You're fine. And I said to you, who got saved that night? I said, they both got saved. Because it wasn't dependent on the quality of their faith. It was dependent on the object of their faith. Their salvation wasn't rooted in how strong their faith was. Their salvation was rooted in how strong their God was. And this is a similar illustration to that. Carson says, let's come at this another way. Do you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning, it is drizzly and hot, and the air conditioner's broken. You reach for a clean, fresh pair of socks, and you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on the way, on that nail sticking out of the wall that you knew you should have fixed about three years ago. You cut yourself while you're shaving. You stumble down to breakfast, and that day your wife is going out for a special meeting with her friends and has not done anything. You go out to the car, put your key in the ignition, and it will not start. You knew that you should have had the battery checked, but it's deader than a a doornail. You get to work late, and people are saying rude things about you. Then your boss says, if you finish that report yet, you're staying tonight late if you have to. The whole day unfolds in one endless set of many irritants. You have an opportunity to speak to some non-Christians, a neighbor, someone over the back fence, someone at the gas station, and you are already in such a sour frame that when they ask some dumb question about religion, you answer with a kind of curtness and condescending wit that leaves them shriveled up in a pile of embarrassment. You feel guilty, but you have done it now. Eventually, you return home, and your wife has cooked this disgusting stew that your children like and that you detest. You cannot be civil to her, and she cannot be civil to you. The kids that night are really not behaving particularly well. Your wife wants your kids to do jobs, and you want to watch football. Finally, it's time for bed at the end of this long day, and your prayer runs something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself. I'm frankly ashamed but I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I've not done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. But then a few days later, you wake up to find the air is refreshingly cool. The sun is shining. The windows are open. The fresh air is wafting through the screen. And you hear the birds singing. You smell something delightful. Bacon. I can't believe it. I wonder what the celebration is. You get up and reach for clean socks and feel full of energy. You're whistling as you wash in the bathroom and then have a wonderful quiet time with your spouse. You eat a hearty breakfast and then go out on your car and put the key in the ignition and vroom, the car starts right up and takes off. You get to work early. Everybody commends your industriousness and intelligence and the way you discharge your duties. Your boss says, wonderful to see you today. Did I tell you that you're going to get a raise? You did such a great job on that contract. Now you come across that same person at the gas station and wonder of wonders, the poor brute actually asks another question. This time, however, you respond with wisdom, tact, gentleness, understanding, courtesy, insight, and kindness. Lo and behold, he promises to come to church with you this coming Sunday. 
Then you arrive home and there's a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving and you have intimate conversation with your wife while the two of you clean up the kitchen. Finally, at the end of that day, you get down to pray and your prayer goes something like this, eternal and matchless God. We bow in your glorious presence with brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace, you have poured favor upon us. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies. And now you go on and on in a flowery theological language. You thank God for all the things in the day, and then you pray for missionaries and their children and their first cousins twice removed. Then you start praying for everyone you can think of in your church, and then you meditate on all the names of Christ that you can think of in Scripture. An hour goes by, and you go to bed and instantly fall asleep. Indeed, you go to sleep justified. On which of these occasions have you fallen into the dreadful trap of paganism? God help us, the sad reality is that both approaches to God are abominations. How dare you approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day you had? As if that were the basis for our entrance into the presence of the holy and awesome God. No wonder we cannot beat the devil. This is works theology. It has nothing to do with grace and the exclusivity of Christ. Nothing. And so we learn here exactly what was most decisive in the Israelites' life. Now, does not God not care about our obedience? Is not God, God not well pleased when we strive to obey him? Of course not. Of course he is. Of course that's not a non-issue. But the point is, is that what is ultimately justifying you in the presence of God? It is the work of God on your behalf in Christ and none of yours. And it's this is what we see as they cross over. It was nothing they did. You say, well, they were walking across. They were walking across with the breath that God gave them. They were walking across with the legs God created. They were walking across limping and stumbling and stammering and fearful because God made an irresistible way that they couldn't deny was of him. When a sea parts right in front of you, you're not wondering, hmm, I wonder, is this God? I mean, this could be Pharaoh. No. Everything, of all aspects of their salvation were totally and wholly the grace and power of God. And such it is with us. So we are saved from sin, point number one. Point number two, we are saved by crossing over. And point number three, we are saved through a mediator. We are saved through a mediator. Why did the Israelites not drown? Were they not sinners? They were sinners. Why did they not drown? The answer is because they had a mediator. That's why they didn't drown. Now, I want you to see this in the passage. Moses is the one who both identified with the people and identified with God. That's what a mediator is. A mediator is a go-between, someone who can identify with both parties. They identify with both God and the people, and Moses is that person. You have one man so identified with the people that he is imputed their guilt. I want you to see this in Exodus 14, verse 15. Look back at Exodus 14, verse 15. First of all, jump to, ele- jump to verse 11. We'll remind ourselves of the complaint, the wicked complaint that the Israelites 
gave against Moses and ultimately God. In verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And then Moses responds full of faith in verses 13 and 14. Basically, be quiet, stand firm, watch what God's about to do. Now notice verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Wait a second. Who's crying? Is Moses crying? Moses isn't crying out in complaint to God. Israel is. Moses just demonstrated great faith. But yet Moses is being rebuked for Israel's sin. Why? Because he's their mediator. He's the one who's representing them before God. And therefore, their guilt is being imputed to him in some way. He was so identified, though, not just with the people of Israel, but he was also so identified with God that God is the one who is working through him. Look at verse 16. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. We've learned a lot about the staff. The staff is the instrument with which God is working these miracles through Moses to accomplish his salvation. And so Moses is identified with God here in executing this miracle. He, yes, Moses is parting the Red Sea, but it's through the activity of God that he's doing it. And then we see also in verse 21, we see this again. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. So Moses is stretching his hand out, but it's the Lord who's working through him. We see it again in verse 26 and 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. So we see God being so identified, or Moses being so identified with the people of Israel that he's receiving their guilt, and so identified with God that God is working salvation through him. Brothers and sisters, Moses is a type of Christ here. Moses is foreshadowing for us another greater mediator to come. One who is far greater than Moses, not afflicted in any way with the sin that Moses was afflicted with, but rather who is perfectly able to represent us, for he is truly and fully, God, fully man, and also perfectly identified with God, for he is truly and fully God, namely the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to see this promise of a future mediator in Isaiah chapter 43. So please hold your finger in Exodus 14. We're coming back. But I want you to look at Isaiah first. And I want you to see what Isaiah prophesies concerning a future mediator who is greater than Moses to come. Isaiah 43 and verses 16 and following. Isaiah 43 beginning at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. This is what he's talking about right here, this very account we're reading this morning. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, 
nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And brothers and sisters, that's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. That promise is the promise of a new thing that God is going to do, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation than even the one the Israelites experience at the Red Sea. Isaiah reminds God's people of how he liberated them through the sea, but then right in the very next verse, he says, forget about that. Forget about that. I'm going to do it again, and it's going to be bigger and better than ever. And we see it in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Behold, two men were talking with him, talking about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses, standing next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and said, I can imagine them saying, should we read Isaiah 43 right now? Should we read about this? This is, this is the moment. This is now time for your exodus to happen. Your departure is coming, and your salvation is about to happen. Christ's death is the greater exodus. Moses didn't ultimately get it done. He didn't get it done. Moses' death merely paved the way for Joshua to take them into the promised land. But Christ, the greater Moses, and the true Joshua has decisively led us as his people into the promised land. Like Moses, Jesus experienced an exodus of sorts early in his ministry as he was baptized into the waters of the river Jordan. But on the cross, the waters of God's judgment engulfed him and the land was covered in darkness and God pulled apart creation around Jesus and Jesus sank into the tomb. But Jesus was not just rebuked for one sin in one verse. He was a mediator who took God's wrath for all of the sin of all the people who would ever believe in him. And this mediator was God the Son. And on the third day, he rose again. God brought life out of death, salvation out of judgment, light out of darkness, just as he did at the Red Sea. How did he bring Israel out? He did it through judgment. He brought, brought judgment at the same time while he was bringing salvation. <clears throat> Imagine the wall of water collapsing in on one another with people and horses being tossed about and dragged down into the depths. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. Being drowned in the midst of the judgment of God. You don't look at the Egyptian army and you say, huh, glad I'm a better person than that. You think, I deserve to be there. That's where I deserve to be. How did I get over? Grace alone. Grace alone. Nothing. I didn't deserve anything. So we look back on that and we think, miracle of God that I was spared. Miracle of God. How did it happen? It happened through Jesus, who was plunged into the depths for us so that we could walk through on dry ground. We didn't earn a stitch of it. We didn't earn a stitch of dry ground beneath our feet. Are you being held up on a solid foundation this morning? You didn't earn any of it. Christ laid that whole foundation on which you stand. You're being held and sustained because he is of infinite and amazing value. And what his work was, was perfect. So as a Christian, you've experienced an exodus that's much greater than the Israelites ever experienced. You might want to say, I want to go back. I want to see that. I'd love to take part in something like that. Brother and sister, you have taken part in a much, much 
greater exodus because you have experienced a greater escape because you've not been saved from an Egyptian army. You have been saved from sin and death and wrath. That is way better than getting saved through a splitting of a, of a Red Sea. We have experienced an exodus that's even more amazing. Quickly, last two points. Number four, we're saved for the glory of God. So we've seen that we're saved from sin, we're saved by crossing over, we're saved through a mediator, but number four, we're saved for the glory of God. Notice that what's ultimately driving all of this has really very little to do with the people of Israel. It has everything to do with the name and fame of God. Do you see that in verse 17? And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots. See, the point is, is God's doing it this way so that God will be glorified for who he is. That's what salvation is all about. Salvation is about God getting glory for his mercy and grace being displayed where judgment and justice should have been. And God's justice is glorified here. God's justice is glorified as the Egyptian people who tried to drown the sons of God in Exodus chapter 1 verse 22 are now being drowned themselves. It's a fair and just judgment. And God's supremacy is being made known. It's very ironic that Egypt, the Egyptians were defeated at daybreak. The significance of that is because their sun god, Ra, was supposed to rise in the east and meet them at daybreak. And here is God showing his supremacy over all their false gods and saying, they are insufficient to save you. And then we see God's salvation of the Israelites being accomplished by God alone for the glory of God alone. I don't have time. I have lots and lots of texts in my notes about the glory of God being the central motivator of all that God's, God does in salvation. And brothers and sisters, I'll just apply it to us simply this way. Whatever system, biblical system of salvation ascribes the most glory to God and ascribes the least to man is the salvation of God. See, even as Christians, we can want to smuggle in some worth to ourselves about why God saved us. Well, I mean, I was more inclined to trust God than they were. It, it was because I had some inherent goodness that other people didn't have. The Bible will have none of that. This text will have none of that. If you are saved, you are saved by God alone, for the glory of God alone, full stop, end of story, period. And that brings us great joy, right? Because salvation is not really about us. It's not really about you and me. Now, are we loved by God personally from the foundation of the world? Yes, we are. But it's not to display the, the loveliness of the object of love that salvation exists. Rather, it's to display the greatness of God's power and grace for those he loves. That's the point of salvation. Salvation, yes, God loves us. God's not just some, you know, robot kind of person that's calculating in his brain, this is how I will so organize salvation so as to maximize my own glory, and I will, that's not what, no, God sets it up so that 
His salvation and the way he saves renders utter and exclusive glory to himself. And that's why he does it this way. That's why he sets it up this way. That's why he puts Israel in an impossible situation. That's why he brings Egypt in. So that when he delivers them, everybody stands around and goes and puts their hand over their mouth and watches the salvation of God with their knees buckling, their eyes in wonder, and their mouths closed. That's our God. Fifthly and finally, we are saved to a new life. We are saved to a new life. We've seen we're saved from sin, we're saved by crossing over, we're saved through a mediator, we're saved for the glory of God, but we are saved to a new life. Last verse of Exodus 14. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. There it is. Two weeks ago, we saw the Israelites lifting up their eyes and seeing the Egyptian army, and it said at the end of verse 10, they feared greatly. And then we come to verse 31, and we read this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. What was the difference? They got saved. They got saved. When you get saved, the objects of your fear change. Not irrevocably, without struggle, but truly decisively. Earlier, the Israelites feared the Egyptians and disbelieved Moses, but now they feared the Lord and they believed Moses. That's what the power of God does. When you see and experience the salvation of God, you're not just impressed, you're led to fear and faith. It's the gospel, a display of God's saving grace that changes us from fearful to faithful. Now, what's happening at the Red Sea is a baptism. At the Red Sea, the same body of water is a place of both judgment and salvation. Paul said the Israelites were baptized into Moses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we're baptized into Christ. They were identified with him as we are identified with Christ. As Moses led his people through the waters of judgment to the other side, those who are in Christ will pass through the waters of death to the other side safely because of his mighty resurrection. That is exactly what the ordinance of baptism represents. This is why we baptize disciples, because it symbolizes their exodus. It symbolizes that they are joined to Christ and they have passed out of death into life. In baptism, we are saying, I've died with Christ. I've been buried with him and I have been raised with him. We're leaving behind our old way of life, a life of bondage to sin and death. And we're entering a new mode of existence. And in this sense, Christian baptism is the way that we undergo our own exodus, leaving this world and joining another way of life under Christ's leadership and authority in the context of his believing people, the church. So, friends, really there are only two options that this text leaves us with. Trust God and make your way across by the way he has provided or drown in your sin. That's it. Those are the only two options. Christ is the only way we can cross over. And the good news is that if you have not yet trusted Christ, the sea remains parted. And you may cross over this morning. Sea's parted. Sea's parted. And sea will remain parted until he comes again or you die. 
don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. If so, your body, figuratively speaking, will be washed up on the shore of judgment. But if you will cross over by grace, through faith, trusting the finished work of Christ exclusively for your salvation, then you can join God's people on the other side. Whereas we'll see next week, we're going to sing happily forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, a word that preaches the gospel to us even from the Exodus narrative. Thank you that Christ is displayed in every single passage for he taught us it was so. Thank you that we've gotten a glimpse of your salvation this morning as we have gazed at our sin, as we have looked again at your judgment that sin so deserves, that we have again thought about the mediator that you have provided for us, that we have reflected again the wonder that we have crossed over by grace, that we are no longer what we, were, what we were, and yet we're not what we will be. We thank you for the new life that you've called us into, one out of bondage and into freedom, into the joyful freedom of subjection to the Lordship of Christ. Help us, for those among us who have yet to cross over, Lord, help them to see the parted water. But help them also to see that that water won't remain parted forever. And today is the day of salvation. We pray that they would flee to the one mediator that you have provided, the man Christ Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.